Today's episode is brought to you by Half Moon Atelier, simple design, big impact. Megan Half Moon of Half Moon Atelier designs foundation pieces for modern sewists looking to create a socially conscious handmade wardrobe. Her mission is to design simple, unique sewing patterns and help modern sewists to source sustainable, ethical, organic, and fair trade fabric as a small step toward her vision of a world in which sustainable, ethical production is simply the standard. Simple design, big impact. Check out halfmoonatelier.com for unique PDF sewing patterns and a compilation of online businesses offering sustainable, ethical fabrics. Thank you so much, Half Moon Atelier. And now here's the show. Welcome to episode 91 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about launching a kit and pattern business with my guest, Susan Fitzgerald. Susan lives right near me in the Boston area, so we are actually able to record this interview in person. So I'm here in Susan's absolutely beautiful studio, and Susan, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It's so nice to have you here. So Susan Fitzgerald designs modern cross-stitch kits and patterns. Her work features stitching on unconventional materials like wood, leather, and acrylic. Her innovative designs have been featured in a number of cross-stitch quilting and craft publications, including Cross-Stitcher Magazine and Molly Makes. With a background in science and technology, Susan did not set out to become a cross-stitch designer. She taught herself to stitch in her 20s as a creative counterpoint to working long days in the corporate world. While dabbling in other crafts like knitting, quilting, and weaving, cross-stitch was always the pursuit she came back to. As her cross-stitch practice evolved, Susan began to explore stitching on alternative materials like wood and leather. She loved how modern and unexpected the pieces were. In 2012, she created a line of cross-stitch jewelry kits featuring the unconventional materials and began selling them on Etsy. She now sells an expanded range of kits to fabric and yarn shops across the country and internationally. Susan lives in Massachusetts with her husband and nine-year-old daughter. Susan Fitzgerald, welcome. Thank you. So how did you learn how to cross-stitch? I know you were working in um, kind of in the, the science and tech industry. So um, so how did you figure out how to cross-stitch? Did you start with a book? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm, I don't remember. I remember the very first cross-stitch kit that I bought, but I don't remember how I actually learned to do it. I think it's one of those, um, I think it's just one of the simplest forms of embroidery, and it really is, in a lot of ways, pretty self-explanatory. I think it's sort of a, a gateway, you know, craft, a gateway into other forms of embroidery and other terms types of fiber craft. Um, so I just remember, I remember buying a kit and just starting and not really the process of how, how I learned. I think it's fun how a kit can really be the entry point. Mm-hmm. I know with making stuffed animals, um, even before I was online, I um, was pregnant with our first daughter and my mom bought me a stuffed animal bunny kit. I think she just saw it and thought it was cute. It'd be yeah. cute for the baby. And she just randomly mailed it to me. And I made it and was like, oh, this was so fun. And that was like way back, you know, in a, a long, long time before I started doing what I do now. Right. But it's not, it's interesting how that kit can sometimes be the thing that is like all the materials right there and simple instructions to make this project. And then you're like, oh, I'm, I'm addicted. Yes, exactly. And that was the way it worked. It was you start with the kit and then you you know, your confidence level grows and so you can start branching out and then you're buying, you know, your own fabric and your own threads and putting them together. And um, I really, yeah, I I completely agree. It's sort of a really wonderful jumping off point. And so tell us a little bit about um, your job and sort of your your major in college and your sort of your career path, because obviously there was a shift at some point, a pretty radical one. So so bring us kind of up to before that shift happens. Um, it wasn't quite as radical as it might seem. It was sort of this um, progression. But I, I, so I grew up um, in the town I live in now outside of Boston, and I went to school in upstate New York, and my degree is actually in biochemistry. Um, and I started a PhD program after I graduated back in the Boston area. And I lasted a year in that program. It was for biology. And I was trying to, at that point, sort of picture what the arc of my life would be if I continued down this path. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't see it. I couldn't picture what it would be. And so I decided to take a leave of absence and I packed up my stuff and I moved to Seattle. Um, 
because it seemed like a good place to be. And <laughs> there wasn't anything more thought out than that. It was just a desire to get out of my comfort zone and, and try something new. Um, and when I left, I told my family, I'm just going to be gone for two years. I'll be back. And I was there for 12. Um, so I ended up being a little longer than I thought. But um, it was, this was, you know, the mid nineties, early to mid nineties. Um, and Seattle was such a fun place to be. And so many people were moving there and it was easy to make friends and meet people. And it was easy to find work. Um, and the work primarily out there was high tech. Um, so that's, you know, what I started to do, um, from camping jobs to then, you know, being hired on by companies. And ultimately I, um, went to work for Adobe and I was there for quite a while. Um, first in the IT department, and then in um, doing technical writing and user research. And at Adobe, there was a knitting group. This is when knitting was really... Um, kind of Debbie Stoller. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. And so there was a group of, um, it was women, all women at the time, uh, who met at lunch mm-hmm. and would sit and knit. And, and so I started that. I learned to knit as a child. Um, and I... Uh, joined the group and, and was knitting and, and I like knitting, but it wasn't it never really grabbed me. I think I, I love the idea of knitting more than I actually like the practice of knitting. Um, and at the time I was um, dating someone whose mom did needlepoint. Um, and I was really fascinated by these sort of very pictorial um, uh, works that she was doing and, and how these patterns developed over time. Um, and, but needlepoint seemed a little bit fussy. And so I, I sort of, I think from there, um, I don't know what ever made me think about cross stitch or how I even knew it existed, but I somehow did. And, and that's what led me to buy my first, um, kit, which as I recall, I think it had, um, like a gingham border and chickens. on it. Yes. <laughs> I had a cross stitch kit in high school and it was just awful. I mean, yeah. it was just totally like, yeah, because that's all that there was. That's all that there was. Yeah. And this was long before Etsy and before you could find people doing modern patterns. And um, so, yeah, that's what. That's, that's what, what you had. That's, that's what, what it, had. that's the definition of what cross-stitch <laughs> was on the market. It, I bought it at, you know, at a bed in Franklin, like a five and dime outside of Seattle. And that's, that's what was available. Right. So, right. But I loved the. There was something about the stitching that I loved. I loved um, all the colors, and I loved um, that. I think, it, in contrast to knitting, where you're doing a lot of sort of the same over and over and over, cross stitch is the same motion, but you're changing colors and you're developing the pattern. And um, and I'm sure knitters maybe feel this way about their work too. I don't, um, but uh, I don't. Um, but and I just loved the action of it too, like pulling the thread through the fabric, and there's a little pop that the needle makes when it pulls through the fabric and there was everything about it. I just really, uh, enjoyed. So how did you then go from, okay, I'm enjoying doing this thing that almost everybody who does this as a hobby, as a hobby, how did you then go from then to saying, okay, wait a minute, I could start a business and this could actually be my full-time job. So it didn't quite work that way. Um, I actually came at about it from the other direction that I wanted to start a business and, Cross-stitch was what I hit upon. And the way I got there is, um, so after our time in Seattle, uh, my husband and I moved back to the Boston area to be closer to family and to raise our family. Um, and I was still working for Adobe at the time. Um, my, when my daughter was about two, uh, I felt the time slipping away and the time that I was working became harder and harder um, to be away from her. And I saw her school days looming and, and I felt that I was sort of missing this precious time. So um, I left uh, Adobe and became a stay-at-home mom, which I loved. Um, but there was something, I needed something else to balance the mom. Um, and so I actually started a blog um, about my hometown and it was a news focused blog. So I would attend committee meetings and our town meeting and I would write about events in town and I'd carry my camera all around and take pictures of things, you know. Oh, that's so cool. So I love hyper-local blogs and I live in Wellesley and Mm -hmm. we have one called the Swellesley Report. And I absolutely love the Swellesley Report. I mean, I I read it every day, and it's incredibly important to me. And I I just love 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 hyperlocal blogs. So that's fascinating. That's where you (laughs) that's where you went. Okay, yeah. That gave me sort of you know the the freedom to do my own thing um, to make 
um, you know, to be my own boss and to set my hours. And, um, and I love doing it. The other part that was really important to me about it was, you know, I was moving back to my hometown. Um, but when you live in a place as a kid, you don't really have an awareness of how the town functions in this sort of larger community um, that makes up the town. And so when I moved back as an adult, having, you know, spent my formative years in Seattle, I felt very disconnected. Um, to the town. This kind of, my family was here and that was great, but, but the rest of the community, I felt I had no real relationship with, except for the people that I would run into, you know, who had known me since I was two. Uh, but, but the way the town had changed and um, it, it felt, I felt very removed from it. So the blog was also a way to become reconnected with that community. Um, and I loved it for that um, above anything else that was really um the purpose that it served for me um so i did that for five years um and um i have since it, the blog is still around what is uh, it called it's called my Southboro. my Southboro. Mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. um did my, you sell it or no, somebody took it over i never really um i never really went into it as a money-making okay. thing i sold some advertising um more because i felt i should um, and local businesses were asking for it than any real desire to um, to make this a business. It was definitely a hobby. Okay. Um, and so I, I handed it off to um, a friend, and she's running it now. Um, so while that was happening, um, <laughs> I wanted to do something that was a little more directly creative. I love the writing, um, but I wanted to do something tangible. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, and I discovered Etsy. I hadn't known about Etsy before. So what year was this so around? Do you remember? To be, so my daughter was born in um, 2007. Uh, and it was maybe when she was three. So yeah, nine, 2010, nine, okay. 2011, somewhere mm-hmm. in that um, uh-huh. time frame. Um, and so, I, yes, I, I, I found out about Etsy and I thought, I want to open an Etsy shop. Okay. That was my motivation. So it wasn't, I'm a cross, you know, I love cross stitch and I want to be a cross stitch designer. It was, I want to have an Etsy shop. What can I sell? <laughs> right. So I think you're probably not alone. I mean, that, I, I'm sure that that story does resonate with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was started trying out all these different things and I, you know, I, it's actually probably a better way to approach things because sometimes when you make something and people are like, oh, you should sell that on Etsy, um, this, what they don't realize there is actually the product that you're making isn't a viable product for to build a business on um, because it takes too long or the materials are too expensive and you can't find them for less expensive, you know, for cheaper costs or whatever. There's so many different reasons why that product may not be actually something that you could build a business on. So coming at it from, I want to open a shop, I want to have a business, what can I make? Then you start to say, okay, well, where can I source materials less, you know, inexpensively enough? And how can I develop a system to make these quickly enough? And um, how can I test that the market actually wants these, you know, whatever it is, and, and then tweak it so that you come to something that is a viable business. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And so I went into it with that mindset that, um, that I needed to to do something that would ultimately make me money. It wasn't, um, I wasn't looking to support a hobby or a passion. I wanted to make something that I could sell and earn money from. And it had to be, I mean, it was within this realm of something creative. So, um, you know, I sort of assumed it was going to be something that I'd enjoy because I like making things. Um, but the, the process of what to sell took a long time. I mean, I think I, tried different things for a, a year or so at least, um, just playing around with, um, well, could I sew this or could I make that? And how oversaturated is this particular market? I mean, jewelry, I thought, was completely out because it's so hard to make it. I think as a jewelry designer, it's hard to differentiate yourself and really stand out. And I knew that that was important, that whatever I made had to be something that would set me apart from what was already on Etsy, which at that point was a lot, was already a very, very popular marketplace. And it's not like these were very early days for Etsy. Um, There were, you know, just everything you could imagine on there. So it had to be something that, that would set me apart. Um, And I also, I I found that I was really um, intrigued by the idea of um, PDF downloads on Etsy. And this was before there was the instant downloads, but even so it seemed like, Okay, so this is something I design once, and I can sell over and over and over and over. That's great. 
Um, so I, I started thinking about it in that context, and that's kind of what brought me back to cross-stitch, um, because at the same time, I'm looking for things to stitch, and I'm not really finding a lot that I find compelling that I want to stitch um, that matched my aesthetic. Um, so those two things converged. Um, and that was sort of my first idea was to, to put some patterns up. But along with that came the realization that you have to sell a lot of patterns at $5 a pop to make any kind of money. Um, so it didn't seem that that could be the whole business. There had to be something else to it. Um, so <laughs> in this process of discovery and sort of thinking about what I could make um, and what I was good at, what I could actually pull off that people would want to buy. I realized my sewing skills are terrible. I'm really not a confident sewer. Um, and I've tried this many, many times. It just doesn't happen for me for whatever reason. So the other problem that I was encountering is that I would stitch something um, that I really loved, but then I didn't know what to do with it. I could, you know, frame it and put it on the wall, but I never felt confident enough to make it into a pillow or a cute little bag. Um, so there was sort of this barrier happening in my own cross-stitch work. So you're saying that you would, even if you designed something yourself or bought somebody else's cross-stitch design, you would stitch it out and it would be, you know, those things take a long time to complete. You take a lot of pride in it, make it beautiful, and it would be finished finally. And then it would just sit in a drawer because figuring out what to do with it next was a pain point. Absolutely. To say, like, how do I make this into a pillow if I can't really sew that well? I'm going to have to outsource that to somebody. Or, you know, should I hang this on a wall? But I have to put it in a frame and then I have to get it framed. Or how am I, what am I going to do with this thing? You know, I yes. can't do anything with it. And so what was all that work for? Right, exactly. And I still have a drawer full of stuff that I've cross-stitched that's just sitting there. And I imagine you're not alone. I mean, imagine a lot of people who do cross-stitch as a hobby do end up with that drawer. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I thought, okay, well, I need to find something that I can stitch on that I don't have to sew. Um, so I thought of felt, I thought of leather, um, these things that, you know, you don't have to worry about the edges. So we happen to have a, a Boy Scout store in our town. And I went one day and I bought a leather bracelet kit. So it's just a blank piece of leather that has snaps on the end. Um, and I brought it home. And again I, with the kit. Again with the kit. Exactly. <laughs> it all comes back yeah, to the kit. Yeah, the kit. It's true. Yeah. Um, it, so I, I brought it home and I got a hammer and an awl and I um, had printed out on graph paper like a little, a little pattern that I wanted to stitch on the leather and I pounded holes in this leather bracelet and then I stitched it. Um, and that was an absolute revelation for me. It was... I, I loved the way the embroidery floss looked on the leather. It was n like nothing I had seen before. Because you have this dark felt. ground yes. that's like this natural material with a pop of color. Right. right. Mm -hmm. It really felt sort of transformative. Mm -hmm. um, it, it made, and then you wear it. And then you wear it. And it's quick and it's small. and Right. But you could probably stitch that, you know, uh, a leather bracelet. And I know you have leather bracelet kits mm -hmm. in your shop now because I bought one for my <laughs> sister for her birthday. Um, but they, you can probably stitch that in an afternoon. Absolutely. I, don't, I, I yeah. haven't done one myself, but I'm yes. imagining. Yes, yeah. you can. I call them um, glass of wine projects or, or cup of tea projects, right. whatever, whichever you right, prefer. Right, right, right. But they're really quick. Mm -hmm. um, and that was appealing too because, as you said before, a cross-stitch takes a long time. For such a simple stitch... And for something that seems so straightforward, it really just, I mean, you can spend months on stitching a cross-stitch pattern um, or years even, depending on, on how complex the project is. Um, so I loved that too, that it was, you know, you, you stitch it in the afternoon, you wear it that evening, it's that instant gratification. So that's a second pain point there is sort of the amount of time it takes to complete right. a cross-stitch that you're going to be proud of. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, but the, the problem that I had with the leather though is obviously I can't, I can't productionalize this. I can't, um, produce a kit where I'm sitting there pounding 200 holes in a bracelet. Um, the other challenge is that leather is a self-healing material, which is great if you're making a saddle, for example, and you stitch and then the leather kind of seals around the stitching, um, and makes it nice and sturdy. But if you're making a kit that somebody might stitch a month from now, might stitch a year from now, self-healing is not a good trait. Um, so I felt sort of stuck. I wanted to, you know, I, I loved this idea. I thought other people would love it too. 
but I had no way of. And also the snaps, right? You need to put the snaps put on. The snaps, and that's a solvable one. Okay. That one didn't scare me as much. But it was punching um, the holes, and then the holes not not staying punched, exactly, basically. Exactly. Um, so you know, I tried different ways of punching the holes, and and you know, different um, different types of punches and different techniques. But still, it was going to be a very very labor intensive process, and I didn't think that I could sell them that at a price point that people would accept. I want to take a moment now to hear from our sponsor, Half Moon Atelier. My name is Megan Half Moon, and my business is Half Moon Atelier. So for a long time, I often found myself searching around online for different types of organic fabrics or ethical, made, ethically produced fabrics. And, you know, I found them. They are there, but it was just hard to find the variety I was looking for. And so I kept thinking, gosh, you know, I really wish there was a list that I could just look at. And at some point I finally realized, all right, I can make the list and I can I can put that on my website and offer that to people. The list is at halfmonatelier.com slash ethical hyphen sources. And uh, it's a growing list. So it's there now, um, but I would love to receive emails from people if they uh, know of an online business that is selling uh, ethically and sustainably produced fabrics uh, that's not there yet, then please let me know and I will certainly add it to the list. What is Half Moon Atelier? So Half Moon Atelier is basically a PDF pattern design label, and it also is a resource for sewists looking to sew their clothing using sustainable fabrics. You know, whether you're going to work, you have a really important presentation that day, or, you know, if you're a stay-at-home mom or if you're a CEO, you should be able to wear organic clothing everywhere. It should just be a standard. And do you want to tell us where you live? So I live on a teeny tiny island called Seba. Uh, it's a small island in the Caribbean, and uh, most people have never heard of it. <laughs> I had never heard of it until I met you, and I met you online. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Half an atelier, I believe in simple design, uh, big impacts, which basically means that simple design and simple choices in our life can also have big impacts, whether that's on our closet, on our daily lives, or also on the world around us based on the choices we make. Thank you so much, Megan. And now back to my conversation with Susan. So a lot of people give up at that moment, right? They're and like, I, well, I thought that was cool, but yeah. not really. And so I sort of, I did sort of put it on a shelf, but it was in the back of my mind. And I was poking around on the web one night and I can't remember what led me to this, except that I, um, there's a, a jewelry designer, Megan Allman. Mm-hmm. You know Megan? Oh, um, sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always admired her work Beautiful. as a, you know, as a metalsmith and also what she's done with her, um, designing an MBA series. And so I had been listening to a lot of her videos and, um, and I think I was searching for videos and she had one where she did a, um, an unpacking of something she had received from a laser cutter. And I thought, laser cutter? What's a, what's a laser cutter? And that's what opened the door. That's what, when I started looking into laser cutting and what materials I could do and um, what the possibilities were, that's what made it doable. That's what made it so that I could design a kit, have it manufactured, have the piece manufactured, um, the laser in the leather burns the leather so the heel the holes don't seal back up um it opened up the opportunity to use wood and acrylic and all these other materials and then that's when that's when the pieces fell together i see i thought i can do this right so we're here in your studio but you don't actually have a laser cutter even though your whole business is really built most of it is really built on these laser cut pieces so why is there no laser cutter here (laughs) there is no laser cutter here because um it's something I've gone back and forth with over the years. I feel like I should have a laser and it would be so cool to have a laser. Um, but it would also be a lot of work and sort of take away from what is my core focus, which is designing the pieces and, um, and selling them. Um, so what I work with somebody else who has a laser and they source all the materials and they understand how the laser works and how to optimize it for all the different materials 
Um, and it means I don't have to worry about it and I can do what I do best um, and leave the cutting and all that technical work to somebody else. Okay. So tell us exactly how this works. So first, how did you find somebody? Are they local to us or are they far away? How did you find somebody to do laser cutting Mm -hmm. for you? Just Google laser cutter, Massachusetts or whatever. (laughs) How did you find this? And then also, um, you know, so did you, did you go over and meet with this person and kind of explain what you were going for? I'm sure they probably hadn't cut cross stitch designs into leather before, you know, so maybe had to do some explaining about that. And then do you go over there periodically? Do you drop off materials for them to cut? Are you actually purchasing it directly from them? So to just explain how the relationship works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's actually really easy. Um, And I think there are even more uh, opportunities to partner with laser cutters now than there was five years ago. Um, But for five years ago, it was a Google search. Um, and there's a service in California that I use and they, um, they have a catalog of materials. So I'm just sort of selecting from materials that, that they work with consistently. Um, it's all an online system so I can upload, I create an illustrator file. Um, and basically I draw what I want them to cut and they cut. And there really isn't a lot of, um, I, I, I talked with them a lot over the years, but, um, initially there wasn't a lot of conversation about this is what I'm doing with this piece. And, you know, it has to meet these certain requirements. It was, um, it was a lot easier than that, actually. It was very, it, there was, um, on my part, a lot of prototyping. Lot yeah, I was going to say, did you get some samples in the beginning and try mm-hmm. them and then, and then edit the Illustrator file and try again? And exactly. so could you order just one in the beginning and mm-hmm. sort of see before ordering, is there an ordering minimum that you have to go through? No. There's no ordering minimum. Um, and it was, it was sort of that iterative process. So I designed something um, in, I think the first piece I designed was in an acrylic cause it was inexpensive. Um, and so I used that for my prototyping. Um, and so I, I, but I would evaluate different materials and the sizes of the holes that you're stitching through and all of that sort of had to be figured out. And that was, um, I mean, it was a, you know, a couple months to, to get that all sorted out between sort of the back and forth between designing something sending it to them, having them send me the parts, testing, that kind of thing. Um, but there are, these days, I mean, you really can just Google laser cutter in Massachusetts and you'll find people all around. You know, there are people in Cambridge, there are people down in Providence, there are people all over the place who have lasers now. Um, and there are also, you know, uh, independent designers who have lasers um, and, you know, that you can work with as well. So the, it's not a uh, difficult resource to find mm-hmm. at this point. And it's, I think that, you know, it opens up a whole new uh, world of possibilities for a product. Um, and so it, w- it enabled you to come up with a viable product that both you enjoyed and were good at and liked the look of, but also, you know, something that you could make affordably and sell and actually have it work as Absolutely. a business. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's- and it took, um, I think some of the the human element out of it, not in a creative sense, but in a, it was very reproducible. Um, you know, the, the mm-hmm. laser <laughs> just cuts what you tell it to cut. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does the same thing every time. So there isn't a variation, you know, you get some variation in wood tones and that sort of thing, because it is natural material, but that's all sort of expected and appreciated variation. But um, the whole size is exactly the same. Every time you cut it, the shape of the piece is exactly the same. Every time you cut it, um, so you had that level of quality control over it. Right. Okay. So then you started selling them on Etsy. That was always the goal from the beginning. Yes. And did you start the blog, Redgate Citrus blog prior to that? Or was it sort of all at once? I mean, in other words, did you sort of build an audience and then launch the product to the audience? Or did you launch the product and then be like, Hmm, I have no audience. I need to, I mean, so how did that part work? That yeah. More the path. Okay. No, I was not, um, I was not, uh, all that strategic about how I launched. Okay. Um, I really had no idea how this would be received. Um, it was something very new in the cross stitch market. Um, and I don't think I knew a lot about who my target customer was at the time. Um, that sort of, that insight has evolved over the years. Uh, but at the start, I don't think I would have even known who to target it to. There was no Instagram at that point. Um, there was Facebook, but um, not with sort of all of the different targeting options that you can use now. Um, 
so I didn't have much of an audience. I just sort of put it on Etsy and hoped. Did anything sell right away? It did. It, it only took, I think, about a month. Um, mostly it was the digital downloads at first. Um, but then that led to, I think, you know, sales of, of kits. And um, yeah, I remember I had someone from Australia wanting to buy a kit. And I, the whole idea of shipping internationally was terrifying but she, you know, I explained to her that I'd, I'd never done this before and I didn't know how to ship to Australia. And she was kind enough to agree to, you know, like, that's okay. I'll help you. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I had some very Gotta nice love those early customers. She was very, yeah. And so I had some really great um, customers to start and it just sort of started picking up steam. And, um, you know, I got some notice from uh, press, from Prestige magazines early on. Who found you on Etsy or found you on Facebook or found how did they found you on Etsy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And I still think that Etsy has value for that. Absolutely. For being found. Yes. Absolutely. Whether it's from just random customers putting in a search yeah. or from press or from store. I mean, there's just, I think that, you know, having a presence on Etsy, if for nothing else, just to be found is a good thing. I agree. And I still, to this day, get emails from people saying, you know, from shops and, and press, I found you on Etsy. I saw your stuff on Etsy. Um, I think it's highly valuable. Right. And then was there a turning point at some point, whether, whether it was one of these press things that happened or some other turning point where you were like, okay, now we're, we've got some steam here. Now we're, I mean, was there, was there a particular thing that you recall where you're like, wow, once that happened, <laughs> all was well, you know, or at least like, I was like, wow, okay, there is a market. I'm going for this. Yeah, I think, um, so there's a, there's a magazine in the UK called Cross Stitcher, um, okay. which is uh, intermediate publishing. So it's the same um, publishing house that does Molly Mays. Yep. And, um, they, I, it's, a really wonderful cross-stitch magazine. It's very modern, very fresh designs. Um, and you can get it here um, in the U.S. at Barnes & Noble and other places. They contacted me and wanted to do, like, a two-page, like, profile of me and what I was designing. And that was really a moment where I thought that this was something. And the fact that they were going to dedicate this space to – I think I'd only been selling for maybe a year at that point. Um, it was exciting and terrifying. And what caught their eye was the unusual materials, was leather and acrylic and bamboo and some of these materials that were not, I mean, what are they called? What is the name? I'm not a cross-stitcher. The cloth, is it Ada? Ada or linen. Ada, okay. Right. So it wasn't sort of maybe most of the other projects in cross-stitcher magazine are built on those cloths. Yeah, exactly. And so that's Mm -hmm. maybe the reason that they thought this was, Right. Of notes or yes. worth looking at. And I think what makes it compelling is um, a couple of things we, we've talked about or touched upon is that it's the projects are too quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not making a huge time investment into it. But also that idea that they're, you can do something with them, you wear them. Um, so it, it isn't you stitch it and you hang it on your wall or it's in your house somewhere. It's um, cross stitch that you're then you're taking out into the world and you have, you're showing people that. Uh, you're saying something about yourself when you wear it, that you're a stitcher, that you're a maker, a creator. Right, and right. Like right now you're wearing one of your necklaces and also one of your cross-stitch bracelets. Do you want to just describe kind of what your line consists of mm-hmm. now, sort of what your products are? Mm-hmm. So I have a range of kits, um, predominantly jewelry kits. So necklaces, earrings, um, the leather bracelets are some of my most popular. Um, I have different sizes, wide cuff, and then some um, more skinny, narrow bracelets. Um, I do Christmas ornaments. Um, I do some needlework tools like uh, thread organizers and scissor fobs, that sort of thing. Um, And then I still do the fabric-based patterns too. Um, So ones that you can just download and stitch on eight o'clock or linen or, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. More traditional, but with a modern aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you have, I mean, you've gone to Quilt Market. Yes. Um, I know that, um, yeah, I've watched your social media updates over time and you'll be getting ready to go to Quilt Market. And <laughs> like, how many Quilt Markets have you been to? Do you, can you recall? Is it, it's several? I think it's either three or four. Okay. Um, and I've done... And do you do TNNA as well? Or? I do. So you do both. So do. you're one of those rare people who can do both Quilt Market right. 
and TNNA, like soak wash can do both. I mean, there's certain, there's certain businesses that can do both. Right. Um, it's not all that many though. And I'm always sort of fascinated by the people who can do both yarn and quilting. Um, but you, you fit in both because the things that you sell, I almost feel like they're the things by the register yeah. where you're sitting there and you're waiting in line and you pick up this little thing and you're like, ooh, and then you add that to the basket, you know? Exactly. Um, and so, and then that can happen in a local yarn shop just as easily as it can happen in a quilt shop because you've got people who like to stitch and to make things yeah. with their hands and it's whether, you know, so it works both ways. Yeah. So, um, so when, I mean, going to both of those shows is, is an investment, even mm-hmm. if it's just, the travel to get there and then hotel, but there's booth fees and then you have to get all the, the stuff ready for the booth, which costs money and all of that. So, um, so just talk a little bit about your strategy and sort of what you're hoping to achieve by going to these two different trade shows. Yes. My strategy has evolved. So I, I think in part, as I've learned more about who my customer is, um, I, when I started, I, uh, I think I thought that my customer was going to be cross stitchers. Um, people like me who had done cross stitch for many, many years. And, um, but and it, it is, but I think more, what was more surprising to me is that um, my market really, I think is knitters and quilters and people who we talked about cross stitch being sort of a gateway craft. Um, and I, I hear from people all the time that they used to cross stitch when they were little but they haven't done it for years because they've moved on to other crafts or, you know, the, um, the types of patterns available don't appeal to them now like they once did, um, which is changing, thankfully. But um, I, I think that, that why these kits appeal is because they are kits. Um, so the, there's everything that you need in one little box. Um, and so you don't have to go searching for supplies. And they're quick. So people have this wonderful sense of nostalgia about cross-stitch and they see these little kits and they think, oh, that would be so fun to do cross-stitch again. And it's in a form that's really accessible to them. Um, so uh, knitting shops and fabric stores are really my primary markets now um, for wholesale. Okay. And was sort of a surprise, a surprise yeah. mm-hmm, that it wasn't going to be someone like you right. who was your target market. And I think right. that that's a mistake a lot of us make and for good reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, we make the things we make because we love to make them. So why wouldn't our target audience be ourselves? Right. But in fact, oftentimes the target market is somebody different from that. And I really perceive, I mean, I think I'm your target market. I perceive, you know, I don't cross it, like I just said earlier, um, but I love to craft and I love a quick project that's pretty and I love a modern aesthetic. And so for me, I'm like, if you're going to give me all the materials and I can just do this while I'm on vacation, Perfect. You know, I'm happy to spend $20 on a project yeah. that I can do like that. Yeah. So I think I'm your target market and I am certainly not a <laughs> lifelong cross-stitcher um, for sure. So that, you know, that's yeah. interesting. And I would, if I didn't know you, I would see your product at a local yarn shop or local quilt shop and definitely buy it. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's interesting. So do you, are you now using distributors, you know, like Checker or, um, you know, or United Notions to, to get, or Brewer to get these out? Um, or are you making connections one-to-one with these shops or sort of what, so you're at the show, people are walking by, what are you doing? You know, who are you talking to? Yeah. So it is, I don't work with any distributors. Um, and every time I go to a show, I talk with all the distributors and I think about it and I hem and I haw. Um, but I, I don't at this point. And is that a cost thing? Because the distributor, just so people understand, right, there's retail and then wholesale mm-hmm. is usually half. Mm-hmm. So 50% uh, of retail. And then with the distributor, there's another 30% that right. comes off. And so, you know, I sell a $9 pattern and I'm it's $3.15 when it goes to the distributor. Right. Um, and so that can be a hard thing to, to swallow unless you're making it up in volume. Right. Exactly. And that's the rub for me is the volume. Um, right now I am, it's just me. I don't have a team of people building kits. Um, I have, you know, a friend who comes in once a week and helps me and my nephew does some work for me after school, that kind of thing. It's a very small operation. Um, and I, I like that. I don't necessarily want a big production house. Um, so that's been more the barrier working with distributors is that I would really need to increase my volume. Um, and at that point I feel like I would become basically I'd become a small manufacturer as opposed to 
an independent designer. And it's just not the direction that I see myself going in. It's sort of like, you know, um, buying a laser. I feel it would pull me away from what it is that I really want to be doing. Mm -hmm. So, right. So right now you're at that moment where you are making a decision, making decisions, a series of decisions about shaping the business's future as the president and CEO. (laughs) Um, So, so, so like one path would say, okay, this is a really popular product. These distributors are interested in it. I'm going to buy a laser cutter or two. I'm going to move into a warehouse setting out of my home. I'm going to hire people to cut these things for me so I can save money from having to order from California, which I'm sure probably over time it would save that money. Um, And you could do more and you could do it in house. You can make it really custom or whatever. And I'm going to hire people who are going to pack kits all day and ship all day and handle all of that. Um, And I'll be the designer and maybe hire someone even to just be the CEO and I'll just be the designer, you know, but I'll own the company or whatever. So you could do that. Or you could stay here at home and keep it small and maybe limit in some way the total amount of money that you can make, but also make it into a business that supports your lifestyle. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's, it feels like two, you know, a fork in the road, these two branches. Um, and I've chosen to walk down one path and not the other. And it's not to say that one is better than the other. Um, they're just different. And have you thought about like the long-term plan? So at some point, you know, this isn't going to fit you anymore. Who knows when? It could be many, many years away or for some strange reason, it could be more, you know, it could be sooner. But have you thought about sort of an exit plan? Would there be a time where you would say, well, Redgate Stitchery's got, you know, equity in the name here and in the product. And this is, you know, we've got all these accounts and I could sell this to somebody. I mean, does that cross your mind? Not in any specific sense, very vaguely. Um, and I, I will admit that sort of that type of long-term planning, not my forte. <laughs> so, uh, like when I, when I was running the blog, I didn't have an exit strategy mm-hmm. for that too. It kind of got to this point where I'm like, all right, I need to get rid of this now because I was running that and I was doing Redgate Citry and Redgate Citry was getting bigger and bigger and definitely where my interest lay. Um, so it was a scramble to say, okay, what can I do with this blog and how do I, how do I offload this? Um, so I should learn from that lesson (laughs) and think about this, but I haven't, Uh I haven't. Okay. Yeah. So right now we're just going to keep it small. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, so about how you do reach your customers Mm -hmm. now, um, so you have wholesale accounts with stores, it yeah. sounds like, but not with distributors. Right. And then you're also selling directly to customers mm-hmm. on Etsy. And yes. you don't have your own shop yet. Is that right? Or that's you... right, but okay. that's coming. It's that's, coming. Yep. Shopify? Mm-hmm. Okay, Shopify. it's coming. Yep. It's All right. built. All right. Sounds good. In my spare time. Okay. Yes. Um, and and so now you do, you do need to reach this... Um, this, uh, you know, ideal customer mm-hmm. one-to-one and, and you do a wonderful job on Instagram. So, um, do you want to just talk a little bit about how you use Instagram or, um, you know, not all of us have an Instagram strategy per se, but there's some strategy. I mean, at least if you're using it, you have some strategy, right. some intention. Yes. So just talk about sort of how you approach it and what you, what your rules are or whatever, um, for your, cause your Instagram is very, very lovely. Thank you. Yeah. It's, um, I really, I have to tell you, I really struggle with Instagram. Um, I love it as a platform. I love, I love being on Instagram and looking at everybody's pictures. And uh, but for me, I think just social media in general has always been a challenge. Um, I'm very much an introvert. Very much prefer to just sort of do my work quietly in my studio. And um, I don't mind. I love going to the trade shows and showing my work there because I get to interact with people in person and talk with them one-on-one, you know, and feel I can make more connections. Sort of this idea of broadcasting myself and my work um, is more challenging for me. Um, So I have to make a real concerted effort um, to, to put things on Instagram and um, you know, I, I, feel like they need to be perfect and they need to say just the right thing. And I'm trying to work through that and get over that, those barriers, because it is, um, there's so, you can make so many great connections on Instagram and it is a great way to, um, to market your work, um, but it has challenges. Right. So are you posting every day? I 
tried to for a while and then I gave myself and I just got really exhausted and I was off Instagram for a couple months because I had, um, I was just so overwhelmed by it. So I've given myself permission to do, I try for every other day um, and I've decided that that's okay and that I don't have to really push it quite as hard um, because that's just going to burn me out um, on the platform. And and I don't want that. I want, so I, I aim for consistency, but not with the frequency that I know some others do. Okay. And are you batching the photos? So in other words, are you saying, okay, it's Sunday, I have a few hours, I'm going to take 15 Mm -hmm. photos. And are you editing them on your computer and then sending them to yourself? Or are you doing this all on your phone? No, I, um, so I have in in this lovely new studio that I have a little table that I use for photography. Um, And that was one of the things that I really, uh, that was important to me about a studio space was um, having some place for photography that was always set up. So it wasn't like a big production to get out my stuff. I used to um, haul all my photo gear down into my kitchen and set up a little um, set, you know, where the, the light was good in the kitchen. And um, But now I have it all out. So whenever sort of the desire to take a photo hits, it's a, it's a low barrier. Um, so sometimes I'll just snap uh, photos on my iPhone, uh, my, um, phone, but more often than not, I'm using my digital SLR, um, to take photos. Um, and I'm taking a range of photos for Etsy listings, for, um, for social media, for my blog, for the newsletter, for, you know, all those sort of, um, applications. Um, and then I use Lightroom, Adobe Lightroom for processing the photos. Um, and I actually just, uh, upload them to Google drive, um, so that I can get to them from, um, you know, my phone or my iPad to post on Instagram. Okay, good. I mean, I think that that process mm-hmm. um, is mysterious to a lot of people mm-hmm. and um, is actually one of the things that prevents them from figuring it out. Yeah. So I think hearing your process of how you get this all done so that it is efficient for you where you're taking a, f- a whole lot of photos and editing them and then putting them in a place where you can access them both on the computer yeah. and on the phone um, and sort of what your schedule looks like. I think that's really helpful yeah. to people to hear. And I've tried different, um, I just signed up for, uh, uh, Tailwind, uh-huh. um, which is a Pinterest scheduling tool. And it, it yes. now has some Instagram integration, although Instagram's API is closed. And so they don't allow scheduling tools that actually schedule. They yes. can send you a reminder, but it, and then you actually have to physically go in and, and post to Instagram. And one of the reasons my understanding is that Instagram's founders really want it to be sort of of the moment. And so they won't, and I'm not sure if that serves them right at this time, but yeah. uh, maybe they've outlived that uh, mission, but right. but here we are. So Yeah. yeah. And, and so I, I did try Tailwind for Instagram um, publishing and I because it just sent you a reminder, it doesn't really add a lot of value to me, although I love it for Pinterest. Um, so for what I do instead is I use uh, Google Calendar and, as I said, Google Drive. So I have all this whole collection, this whole library of photos on Google Drive that I can select from that are also formatted and, you know, nice and square for Instagram. Um, and I'll go into my Google Calendar and actually type out a caption for a day and attach a photo um, to that caption, you know, to that reminder that event in Google calendar. And then it pops up a notification when I want to post it. So I've sort of set, okay, at eight o'clock tonight, I'm going to post this image and this is what my caption is. And that I can't be all that spontaneous on on Instagram. I need to think about it more. I need to sort of contemplate what I'm going to say and, and craft a little more carefully just for my own comfort level. So this allows me to sort of schedule it in advance and I can do, you know, sit down at the beginning of the week and schedule out three or four posts for that week have them sort of all ready to go. And this, this lessens my anxiety level with, with Instagram. So. And you're putting your hashtags in there as well. Yes. And you're typing them out on your computer. So you're not having to type out the caption on exactly. a little tiny keyboard on your that's phone. Right. Yep. That's right. Right. Again, that's so helpful to hear. That's a great, I mean, you basically did what Tailwind's Instagram scheduler <laughs> does, but using Google applications yes. instead, which using are free. free things, exactly. <laughs> so, okay. So that's a great tip. And you mentioned you have a newsletter. Yes. Um, so how are you using newsletters? What are you doing with that? I'm trying to get more um, regular about it uh, and more consistent. Um, so it's been a little bit sporadic, um, but I use MailChimp, which I um, really like. Um, and it's... 
I'm trying to be sort of thematic about it, you know, so I'll promote um, my jewelry pieces that have hearts right now for Valentine's Day and, you know, or Christmas ornaments for Christmas. And um, it's, I'm aiming to be a little more content driven than I have been in the past um, in terms of like sharing tutorials and um, other projects that you can do with the pieces I design and and sort of um, expand that notion of, of what you can do and how you can use these pieces. Mm-hmm. And are you sending it monthly or sort of whenever a promotion seems like a good idea or? It's a little bit more whenever. Um, I'd like to get to two every other week. Every other week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good, I think every other week or, or every week or uh, mm-hmm. one of those two. I think once a month is my personal I, opinion. I, I, you're, you're once a month, I'm a big newsletter. I'm a newsletter crazy person, but okay. Um, all right. And you have a blog. Mm-hmm. If I'm right, the blog doesn't actually have comments enabled. Am I right about that? Or maybe it does, and I, I just missed I it. turned them off. I can't remember why, but um, I, I think it – I didn't have a lot of engagement on the blog. I've mm-hmm. been sort of underutilizing it. Um, so, again, sort of one of my 2017 plans is to um, be a little more content-focused, um, so make leverage the blog more in my marketing um, and so I think it, I thought it looked sad that there mm-hmm. were no comments. So I turned them off, but mm-hmm. I will probably. Turn I think it's off. interesting. Yeah. A blog. I mean, I think, I don't think a blog has to have comments mm-hmm. and, um, and I know like I love Lisa Congdon's blog, for mm-hmm. example, and she has no comments on her blog and she turned them off years ago. And, um, I think it served her fine. And especially with social media, people can comment right. elsewhere and they, they are free to do so. <laughs> <laughs> they do so freely. And yes. Yes. But I think it's brilliant on your blog. You do have some resources there that are enduring. So a sort of a basic cross stitch, mm-hmm. um, how to, for example, right. which, um, which gives, you know, people some confidence that like, well, if I ordered this and I, and I don't actually remember how to cross stitch, I can go here and you show with visual instructions very clearly how to do the stitches. Right. Yeah. I think that's really important. And because again, I'm uh, targeting my customer hasn't necessarily done cross stitch either ever or in a long, long time. Um, So having um, those educational resources are important. And, And in the kits, there's, you know, you get a little instruction booklet that tells you how to cross stitch. And I don't presume that anybody knows how to do it when they, when they pick up the kit. Right. And then you also have, I also think this is really cool. You have these little printable design grids that Mm -hmm. people can use to plan out their stitching so they can go on your blog to the resources section and print that out and then, you know, use colored pencils or whatever to color in where, where they're going to stitch. That was one of the funny things about, um, learning who discovering who my customer was, um, and how they're not me (laughs) is that, or in a lot of ways, they're not me. Um, When I started, I wasn't, I sort of, I didn't immediately kit the pieces. Um, I, I, I kitted some of them, but then I also thought, I saw it more as a supply, um, that you would go into a cross-stitch shop, um, and you already have your huge stash of, um, uh, thread and, and you would buy just the little wood piece, um, and stitch something on it of your own design and your own making. And that's what I thought was going to be big. That's what I thought people were really going to want was just that little piece that they could then create something with. Um, But it became clear really early on that that wasn't at all what people wanted. Um, And what I would hear is, oh, just, just tell me what to stitch. Just, I don't, I don't want to figure it out. Just tell me what to do. Tell me what to stitch. And that's what led me to the kit. So I really don't sell a lot of the, I, to some cross stitch stores, I will still sell the, um, the blanks, but 99% of what I sell is kits. And I, you know, I think that that's a mistake that a lot of people make too. And sort of going back to that sort of misunderstanding who your, who your target customer is, which is to say that, um, as a designer or as a person who sort of is naturally inclined to say, Oh, I can just come up with my own way of doing this, my own design. Um, we assume everybody wants to do that. And the reality is in craft, this is a hobby and it's a low stress, high happiness hobby, right? Where everything else feels out of control. Your hobby feels under your control and what people really want. And it it can be frustrating to designers to say, well, why would you want to buy the exact fat quarter pack that I use for the cover of the pattern and make yours look exactly like mine. Don't you want to innovate? And the answer is no. no. <laughs> um, there's a small sector of people who yes. want to do that. But the, if you really want a, 
uh, product that's going to to appeal to a large enough market that they're going to support you, what they actually really want is to make the one on the cover. Yes. And they want to be able to do exactly what you've done. They want every supply provided and every step of the way provided exactly. so that it's fun with a glass of wine and a girlfriend and it's done. Exactly. Exactly. And I totally get it because if I were to make a quilt, that's what I would want. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And I'll be really, really happy, but don't make me figure it out. Right. And so for a quilt designer to say, but you know, you're creative, come up with your own. No. Right. Because it's particularly with something like a quilt or really anything that you're making, there's an investment both in time and money. And the worst is to get to the end and go, oh God, I hate it. You know, I didn't, I wish I didn't pick that fabric. And what was I thinking combining those two things? And I think it's analogous to thinking about a recipe, right? Mm-hmm. So if you were to say, well, you know, if a, if a, a, a online, you know, blog, food blog were to say, well, you know, just add, add some spices that you think would be a Moroccan flavor, <laughs> right. you know, and, and of course she can do that because she knows a whole variety of Moroccan spices, yes. um, having lived in Morocco and, you know, but you, that's not going to work for you. Is yeah. it a quarter t- teaspoon of cinnamon or is it a half teaspoon? Yeah. Like I want to know because I want the flavor in the end to be a good flavor yes. and I don't want to innovate. Yeah. Um, maybe down the road when I have a chance to sort of really delve in, but you reason I turn to a recipe is because I want to make this dish yes but at the same time so so I I love to cook so you're speaking my language here um I love to take a recipe and now I have reached that confidence level that I'm gonna tweak it and I'm never very rarely going to make the recipe exactly as it's written and so that that translates to the kit world too um so with the kits I make they're I work with um a consistent palette of colors but within that palette of colors I try to offer a couple different designs so you aren't necessarily um, making just one thing. You can choose from a couple different patterns to stitch, or you can say, well, I really like this pattern, but I want to use these colors more. So there's some freedom, some sort of creative freedom within the kit um, if you want it, and you don't have to do it. You can so in other words, there's a that. set of holes, and you could stitch it straight up, or you could stitch it as a chevron design, or, you know, so you, you can yes. use that same set of holes and the same floss that's included or, or, you know, thread that's included, yeah. but you can stitch them in different ways and you show, okay, you'll get this effect, this effect, or this effect. Exactly. Um, so pick one exactly. of those three. Exactly. Yep. Right. Yep. And that, that evolved, um, the, the having multiple patterns, um, possible patterns within one kit, um, evolved for a couple of reasons. One, it was to give the maker some um, creative license and some freedom to sort of play with it if they wanted to. Um, but it was also a very practical um, way of managing my SKUs and my inventory. So instead of producing a separate kit for every single pattern um, that I then had to track and make and stores had to stock, you know, all these different multiple SKUs, it was more compelling to offer one kit with multiple designs um, that gives that freedom and also just makes it a lot easier for shops to stock um, because they they don't have to try to carry such a range. Um, they can have one, one kit that offers those options all within that one piece, and it's just easier for me to make them. And let's just um, sort of finish talking about shops for a second by saying by talking about what – what have you learned about the shops that are most successful at selling these? What are they doing? Are there particular accounts that you have where you're like, wow, that shop is killing it. Like they're really doing this well. And then other ones where you're like, you know what? You don't turn over anything. You never yeah. seem to sell them. And so what are some tips or things that you've learned about the shops that are doing well with these? Right. Yeah. Because there is that range. Sure. Um, and, and I think there probably always is with any product, but, um, you're absolutely right when you were saying before that these are really grab and go kind of pieces. Um, so I offer, um, when I go to shows and I'm um, taking orders, I will often offer a show special that's a little retail display. So it's this little wooden tiered display that you can put right on your counter, right by the checkout. Um, and are and you selling those display pieces? I usually just did give them as a show special. So if you okay. order X number of dollars worth of product, Got you get this little display unit for free. Got it. Um, and so it, uh, which is in, you know, my best interest too. I want these to be presented in a way that people are going to find them and see them and like them and right. I get more reorders. Um, so I think that is a key to success. Um, 
I also think, I mean, demographics have a lot to do with um, who responds to these pieces and who doesn't. I find that the shops that do really well are in more urban centers that have um, a younger um, clientele. Uh, they are often shops that sell both fabric and yarn. So they're uh, appealing to a very sort of broad base of creator, of maker, that um, that it's not the... I'm not really looking for the people who are necessarily really hardcore and technical into a particular craft. Um, my, the people who respond to my kits are the ones who sort of dabble in this and try this and experiment with this. And, oh, I'd love to try that someday and learn this. And they do a lot of different things um, and, and participate in a lot of different crafts. Um, so that helps, I think, um, for the shop. And then always, you know, if they make samples and, and these are... Um, I've had to be very sort of deliberate about my packaging. Um, the My packaging is all clear boxes so you can see what's inside because it isn't something that people have any sort of concept of necessarily before they see this kit in a store. So they don't, it's not like they have a context for, oh, well, this is a knitted scarf and I understand that this is yarn and what this might translate to. Although even then having those swatches and samples at the yarn store is, is so helpful. Um, this is a product that needs people need to be able to see, um, to understand sometimes. Mm -hmm. Right. So packaging that's clear mm -hmm. so people can see is important. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Those are some really good tips for, for making mm -hmm. these actually sell in shops. So, okay, let's get to your list um, mm -hmm. of recommendations because um, you've got some good ones on here. And the first one, actually, we, we talked already about Lisa Congdon, um, who was a past guest, by the way, on the Walsh and Ups podcast, if you want to go back and listen. But um, so you wanted to recommend, especially her creative bug videos. Yes. So I, I love everything she does. I love all of her artwork. I think she is a person has such a tremendous spirit. Um, and I, I love seeing her on video and really watching her um, uh, go through her process. So she has a new, I think it's a six week creative boot camp um, that just launched on Creative Bug um, in January. Um, and it's a, a new episode comes out every week. And I find myself like just waiting for that next episode. And they're really wonderful. That's great. And even if you don't work along with it. I feel like just watching it Absolutely. in some way, it's like, we keep making food metaphors, but in some ways I feel like it's watching the food network. Right. I don't have to say, I don't actually have to cook with the person who's presenting, but yes. just watching them cook has some creative value to me. Yes. And it's sort of similar in that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I, and drawing is something I really, I wish I was better at. I wish I did more. We all so, do. Yeah. 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 We all so. wish that. I feel like that's a pretty <laughs> she common. She makes it look so easy. She does. <laughs> she, she's been doing it for a little while now, yes. but yes. All right. And you also do some volunteer work in your daughter's elementary school yeah. art class. Yes. So this is, my daughter's in fourth grade, um, and I've volunteered a couple times now in her art class, and it's it's really such an amazing experience. These kids are so fearless about art. They just just do it. And they love the process and they're so free with it. And I think cross-stitch is a very sort of exacting craft. I mean, you're really down to pixel level. Um, when I'm designing, I get, you know, that sort of focus that it's really nice to take a step back and sort of watch these kids interact with their materials and be so open about it. And um, it's, it's really inspiring. Mm hmm. Just to get in there and do it. Yeah. 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 I like to draw with my kids. Um, although I find that I always have to do something that's super sort of bizarre and abstract and not, you know, I don't try to make it good yes. because if I do, they like freeze up and they want theirs to look like mine. Exactly. And I've had some bad experiences with that. So now I'm just like, mommy's making stripes, you know, <laughs> like I just like dive in and I'm just like, well, they're like, why would you do that? And I'm like, yeah, well, I'm making some dots. Like, <laughs> nothing you know but I still enjoy it but I just sort of don't try yes. I don't try to make it good you know necessarily like um, representational good right. I guess okay um, and then the last thing you wanted to recommend was a Japanese embroidery is this a technique and mm -hmm. it's is it called kogan I think so okay. I don't actually know how the word is pronounced I, I had um, a friend that I meet up with uh, from Seattle every time at quilt market and she speaks fluent Japanese and she was uh saying this word kogan it's k-o-g-i-n and she said it in just this way that i can't possibly reproduce <laughs> okay so, so i'm not going to say it right and i apologize um but uh but that's what it is and it's a it's a technique that's it's composed of running stitches so in that sense it's similar to um sashiko 
Um, Sashiko. See, again. In my mind, I say it's Sashiko, but I don't actually know if that's correct. Um, So, but the stitches are smaller and more densely packed. Um, And it's done on an open weave fabric. Like you could do it on Ada or linen. Um, So it's a sort of a counted thread um, technique. And it, uh, you do these series of running stitches in rows to create different patterns. Um, it's really beautiful, and it's something I've been wanting to play around with. And you can find it. You can find people doing it on Instagram, on Pinterest. And so is it like that. a light um, floss on a dark ground or vice versa? It can be either. Anything. It's typically, most of the examples I've seen are single color mm-hmm. um, uh, with a repeating pattern. Um, but it can be, I've seen it dark on light, light on dark. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating. Neat. I'll have to mm. check it out. Yeah, I've never heard of it before. Well, Susan, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walsh Naps podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. This and, has been fun. Yeah, and thank you for having me out to your studio. Um, so uh, you've been listening to the Walsh Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing and blogging and small business right in your inbox each week. And thank you to today's episode sponsor, Half Moon Atelier. Half Moon Atelier believes in simple design and big impact. Megan Half Moon designs foundation pieces for modern sewists looking to create a socially conscious handmade wardrobe. Her mission is to design simple, unique sewing patterns and help modern sewists source sustainable, ethical, organic, and fair trade fabric as a small step toward a bigger vision of a world in which sustainable, ethical production is simply the standard. Simple design, big impact. Check out halfmoonatelier.com for unique PDF sewing patterns and a compilation of online businesses offering sustainable, ethical fabrics. Thank you so much, Megan and Half Moon Atelier. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.